for a lot of communities, we don't get to just show up at the march. We have to show up every day for this. Mm -hmm. And I think that if a white woman wants to find her place in this movement, I think that, you know, she should start asking herself, you know, where are you when the black people in your community are being killed in the streets by police officers? Mm -hmm. Where are you when the immigrants in your community are being separated by their families? Activism isn't just about showing up when the issues affect you. It's also about showing up when the issues don't affect you. You're listening to Shade, the podcast where I chat to creatives and activists who challenge ideas on race at a time when identity politics is at the forefront of our cultural landscapes. I'm Lou Mensa, writer and photographer, and I've always wondered why people create the work that they do. This week I chat with Kenyatta Thomas, radical feminist and co-president of the Women's March Youth and Power Group. I go to American University in DC, and outside of that, I'm almost a full-time organizer. Um, the work that I do with Women's March Youth and Power on top of being an intern for Blue Future, and also working with the Young Women of Color for, for Reproductive Justice Leadership Council. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot to manage. Um, it can get a little bit overwhelming, to say the least. Like, I know this past week, I haven't made any time for self-care, which is kind of a failing on my part for not really staying Mm -hmm. on top of it. Um, But there can definitely be bias within progressive spaces and it's my community. And so because I know that most people there have the best intentions in mind, you know, they may have the best intentions, but you know, that doesn't mean that feelings won't still get hurt and that they can't still cause harm. So I usually, in those spaces, try my best to call people in um, instead of calling them out. Because I think that um, education is almost a form of self-care for me, Mm -hmm. being able to prevent those people from causing further harm to myself or to others. I don't buy into the whole, like, go get a manicure, pedicure, retail therapy, like, Mm -hmm. version of self-care, because I think that's just capitalism trying to Mm -hmm. teach us to buy our happiness. I try my best to be alone with myself. I'm very much an introverted person, but Mm -hmm. organizing, especially organizing almost 24-7, can be extremely draining, talking to people all the time. So I try to meditate a lot. Back home in Mississippi, I would usually go down to the beach and sit down on the rocks and meditate. But having just moved to D.C. now, I haven't really been able to find my place yet. I'm still still on the hunt to try to find that good nature spot to just sit down in the grass and um, and chill out. I hear you. We're very similar in in that I'm an introvert as well. Um, I think that's why um, before I before I hosted this podcast, I was kind of a photographer. And I think that was my comfortable spot that I could communicate with people in a way that was safe for me as an introvert. But um, but also now I home educate my my daughter. Um, So that takes up my time full time and then as a mother with all the domestic chores and then my my um I work part time on top of that I I found it really hard to find time for self care and other people were saying to me you know the absolute priority in your timetable before you give any time to what you're doing for the education is to um 
to prioritize your self-care and I really didn't know what they meant until I started but mine mine is also meditation and I'm lucky enough to find um a, a quiet um safe yoga class that I make sure that I try and go to regularly and even when I'm exhausted I just feel revitalized from doing that and everything seems to reset it's really critical and I don't think that our current society of like it basically pushes you to work, work, work and like continue working and you don't, they, we, we aren't taught to care about ourselves most mm-hmm. of the time. And I feel like self-care, you know, like your friends were telling you, like you have to schedule it in. It's just as important as an appointment or like yes. a conference call. Like it's, if you're not taking care of yourself, then how are you going to get anything done? Like Yeah, absolutely. And it's a learning process. Like when I was in my 20s, I'm in my late 40s now, but when I was in my 20s, um, you know, I, I definitely learned that the hard way. And that's when um, I started my activism as well. And I was working full time and I was partying full time and I was doing everything <laughs> full time, you know. And um, yeah, and I became unwell. I got glandular fever and a chronic illness and that went on for a very yeah that went on for a very very long time I had to take time off of work um and so that's when I learned to reset everything it was very interesting when you said that if there are any issues within your groups you like to call in rather than call out I think that's that's an amazing way of thinking about it but we are in such a call out culture where some people, some people's idea of activism is literally just calling other people out for doing things wrong with very little work going on themselves. But the Women's March, which happened in 2017, was a great success. And it was an inspiration that led to enthusiasm for further protests and people becoming more aware of their environment and their society and 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 how they can engage more um, with the important issues. But over here, there was backlash where the media would attack some of the participants in the march. Predominantly, it was the middle-aged, middle-class white women, and they were being attacked for turning out for these marches. They were being sort of perceived as turning up for a day out. I found that deeply saddening. I had friends of mine who went to the march and have continued lots of work, you know, in their own spaces since then. But it really did, it really did affect them when they read this press. But looking back to the backlash from the media, do you think that it was in any way a significant observation? For starters, I don't think that the criticism should have come from the press. I think the criticism should have come from the communities that are most affected by white feminism. And um, I have, some of my greatest mentors have been white women. Um, Mm. I wouldn't be an activist if it wasn't for the white, straight, cis, female organizer back home for Planned Parenthood. Like, I wouldn't even be talking to you right now if Mm. I had never met Jennifer and she is an amazing organizer she's doing amazing work and she taught me so much and she's a white woman speaking to me a young black queer woman being an ally is a learning process it's amazing when white women use their privilege for good and they actually commit themselves to the work and they show up every single day Mm -hmm. but there is 
some standing to the argument or to the observation that for some white women, they do only show up at the Women's March. But I think that being an ally is a learning process and that it's important to have discussions with them because for a lot of communities, we don't get to just show up at the march. We have to show up every day for this. Mm -hmm. And I think that if a white woman wants to find her place in this movement, I think that, you know, she should start asking herself, you know, where are you when the black people in your community are being killed in the streets by police officers? Mm -hmm. Where are you when the immigrants in your community are being separated by their families? Mm -hmm. Um, Activism isn't just about showing up when the issues affect you. It's also about showing up when the issues don't affect you. I think that more than anything, it's just important to continue having discussions with people because allies are extremely critical to the work in our movement. And it's just important to, you know, call people in and say, you know, hey, you went to the march, now come to this, start organizing, start engaging with people in your community and making a change there. Mm. And we've discussed how tough committed activism can be and sometimes we find it hard to measure or even see our significant victories. But the changes that you are focused on in the work that you do are deep and systemic. And I agree um, with what I've read you say, which is that we may not see changes within our lifetimes. So I wonder what indications do you see that support you in the vital work that you're doing? I think that it's important that even though the change may be a long way off, it's important that we get started now Mm. because it's kind of (laughs) the bystander effect is very, very toxic. And, Mm. um, you know, people start thinking, you know, someone else will take care of it or the future generation will take care of it. And that's how we got where we are with climate change. Yeah, Um, yeah. But uh, one of my biggest motivators, honestly, has to be children. Uh, I really, really love kids. I do. And I'm excited (laughs) to be a mom one day. And something that was particularly exciting for me yesterday, since yesterday was Halloween, was um, I was on the bus leaving my internship and I saw this um, this young black girl with her mom and she was dressed up as Jessie from Toy Story. Yeah. And. She was just so happy and just, <laughs> she was like talking to this other woman on the bus and just showing her all the candy that she passed out to her <laughs> friends in class and just seeing her joy and seeing her, she was being her most real and authentic seven-year-old young black girl that she could be. I think about sometimes, you know, the society and now I probably used to be that way. Then I got told slowly over time that I'm not good enough as a black woman. I'm not pretty enough. Mm-hmm. I'm... I'm too angry. I talk too much. I Mm -hmm. do this too much, do that too much. Mm -hmm. Um, And it beats you down. Then, you know, being discriminated against in classes and Mm -hmm. spaces. And I don't want that little girl and future little little girls like her to grow up that way. So even though the work is going to take a very, very long time, it's important that we get started now because I don't want you know, even my children and that little girl I saw on the bus to grow up the way that I did. I want them to have a much, much better future to live in. Yeah, I hear you with that. That's also one of the reasons why I decided to home educate. I realised that, you know, my daughter was in um, an environment six or seven hours a day that wasn't teaching her to um, be passionate um, about about what's going on in in the world around her they weren't they weren't 
even talking in age appropriate ways about the issues that were going on and but also mm. um there wasn't any focus on individualism you know you can't be yourself you must all be the same you must you know and they mm-hmm. and the, and she wasn't learning critical thinking and independence of thought there's this one young child in the world and of course I can do all the work outside of school hours but so much information was coming from the education environment that didn't sit well with me or our our values as a family. Uh, You know, you've got a short time on this earth as a child. And um, one thing that I can do for you um, and um, for your family that you will have one day is to teach you um, how to be independent of thought and how to critique messages that you're getting from the outside and how to really know yourself and spend time doing the things that give you joy in learning and in education and also to spend time with like-minded people um so yeah it's really admirable it was a it's like a quiet form of activism and yeah, that won't about... just affect her. That'll affect all of her friends that she sees, the way she raises her children and talks to her children's friends. Like, that's going to have a profound impact. But talking about the kids, um, Generation Z is the most diverse and progressive in U.S. history. And I was reading some research that said that the turnout of college age voters doubled during the 2018 midterm elections. But nearly 20% of young people don't believe that they know enough to vote. And what are the key things that we can do to support you and the younger generation to see political activity as something that they can awaken into? I would say that most movements are started by young people throughout history. We just see it time and time again, young people showing up. And especially because we're younger, we can see the new world that's being built. You know, um, I feel like the older generation, they become more numb to changes and they don't notice them. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, we see what's going on and we see the way the world is changing. And so we we rise and we try to make the changes that we think need to be made in a lot of ways we can be pushed away from the political process. For me, I feel like part of the reason why I'm so politically active is because my parents always had the news on when I was younger. Eating breakfast every single morning, the news was on. Eating dinner that night, the news was on. So there was never this thing of my parents like keeping political events or like current events away from me because I was too young to see it. I think that a lot of young people have to deal with that being kind of put in a bubble and like kept away from like these conversations that are considered too important. Include young people in these important discussions. I mean, yes, yes. There's no reason why we shouldn't be engaged other than attempting to belittle us and I feel like we are kept in this bubble and then when we don't care, we get mocked even further for it by yes. the older generation. Mm-hmm. It's like a catch 22. Mhm older generation needs to learn to trust young people and trust our thoughts and our opinions because we care and we're angry and we want to see change but that disengagement can sometimes be created by not seeing any change especially for like the younger generation z that's not able to vote yet they aren't able to go out and directly create that change that adults can make through voting yes and i think that adults need to learn to support us and our political growth and our like just development as people by 
having these discussions with us and just having that discussion and fostering that idea of political engagement. Yeah, and also so many of the organisations previously were adult led right so it's very difficult for young people to feel comfortable <laughs> within those groups and to and to have their voice voices heard and that's mm-hmm. why um it's so important that youth sections of some of the great um, organizations have started like with the women's march and so there's a two-way conversation going on between the older generation and the and the youth you know when i was young there wasn't anything like that you know we had to just hang around with like the real old timers and it was (laughs) fine it definitely felt like we were tagging along with in old established arenas and i think that um, these new sections of youth groups that um, are starting are, are really valuable for that reason. You know, when big things happen just in this country, um, for example, Brexit, right? I assumed that, of course, that was going to be discussed in the classroom in an appropriate way in which the children could understand. But it wasn't, you know, mm. and it was these things. And there's very big things that happen socially over here. I don't know if you heard of the Grenfell fire yeah. um, here. And that really rocked a huge part of our community especially the black community you know it wasn't discussed at school and I just I that was just amazing to me and and that's insane that doesn't that doesn't make any sense to me yeah exactly and um and but you know and then kids would pick up the odd thing from the tv or someone would say something on the playground about it perhaps but it wouldn't be the correct information and so the children would go home with wrong information about these things and then they perhaps would become scared and I just thought you know just the lack of focus on the the passion and the integrity that young people have for the issues that affect everybody um, can't be underestimated and unfortunately it has been and I'm just so inspired by the new youth organisations that that have started but to finish up I just wanted to quote something I read you say in a previous interview and it was so positive and it's about carrying on with this work even even though at times it can be difficult you said that whenever you get defeated, you turn to a quote from the musical Hamilton, which I haven't seen yet. I can't believe it, but I haven't. And the quote is, what is a legacy? It's planting seeds in the garden that you never get to see. That actually really, I just think that's the most beautiful quote. And one of the richest parts of connecting with my guests in these conversations is hearing what inspires them. When you're feeling the need to retreat, I actually have a playlist on my phone that's literally power with the black fist emoji. It's a playlist of songs that if I'm ever feeling down or I kind of just need that motivation, I turn to and it has songs from Kendrick Lamar and Lizzo and Beyonce. Fantastic. And <laughs> yeah, it's just, I don't know. I feel like especially music can, it does create a different type of peace. Very recently, there was a screening of Knock Down the House, which I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's a documentary about the 2018 midterms in the U.S. No. It focuses on these four phenomenal women, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, Amy Valella, and Jean Swernigan. They were all running against these huge incumbents in their cities and in their districts but 
they were going to do it because of the progress and change needed to happen. Cori Bush was the black was the only black woman in the documentary, and mm-hmm. she was running in the district where Michael Brown was killed. Mm-hmm. And she was a nurse during the Ferguson riots, and she was out there on the streets healing people and helping people. Hearing her story and seeing the passion that she had to try to make a change was and is every time I watch the documentary very very inspiring for me Mm. and even hearing from Ocasio-Cortez part of her story is when she was little her father took her to the Capitol and he pointed at the U.S. Capitol and the Washington Monument and he said this government is yours it belongs to us Mm. and hearing the connection that she had with her father just reminds me of in a connection I have have with my dad, the way that he inspires and pushes me to do more and to go mm-hmm. further. Um, he's scared of me being involved in politics, but <laughs> he drove me to my first lobby day at the Mississippi <laughs> State Capitol with Planned wow. Parenthood. And wow. even, he even put on the Planned Parenthood shirt and he went with me to write letters to representatives. And oh, well, come on, that's amazing. <laughs> It, it was really awesome. And so on screen, seeing that connection that AOC had with her father, it just reminds me of that connection with my dad. And that in a way triggers this push for me to do more because I know that I want to make him proud. I feel a tear, but it's a good one. Sorry. <laughs>